listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to go over our usual shout out to all of our listeners. It is because of you that we are one of the biggest podcasts in Ohio. You have made us number two on Evergreen Network as well as number two on KillerPodcasts.com. With your help, I know we can get the number one. All you have to do is just keep doing what you're already doing. Keep sharing our podcasts with friends and family, and keep supporting us on patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Please also leave us feedback on our episodes. If you have any take on any episode, email us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. And who knows, you might hear your feedback on an upcoming podcast. So, Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. We've had a little run of 19th century stories here recently, and we're going to go back there again tonight because I came across one I just couldn't pass up on. It's literally a horror story in every way possible. In West Central Ohio's Logan County, you'll find Herod Cemetery. It's near the village of Huntsville, right off Township Road 56. It's an old graveyard, though people still get buried there. In the part of the cemetery where people were interred more than a century ago, locals say they've got a mean ghost running around. They call him the Hatchet Man, for good reason. In life, he answered to a less fiendish name. He was Andrew Hellman when he killed his first wife with an axe and poisoned all three of his children, two of whom died. After he escaped prison before his trial, he changed his name to Adam Horn, and that's when he killed his second wife and dismembered her body with a hatchet. So, to be fair, Hatchet Man seems a pretty appropriate nickname. For decades, there have been stories of his tombstone glowing in the dark, and reports of a spectral figure swinging a hatchet. Visitors say they've actually run from the cemetery, feeling like they were being chased. We've got a mystery here, though. Some of Hellman's victims are buried at Herod, for sure. Their tombstones are faded, but legible, even after nearly 180 years. But is their killer also here, in an unmarked grave? Or was he buried 400 miles away in Baltimore? Let me tell you his story first. Then we'll cover the question of his final resting place. Andrew Hellman was a German immigrant born in 1792 on the River Rhine. By his own account, he was raised well by good parents, given an education, and at the age of 16 became apprenticed to a tailor. He was 24 when he heard the call of America and booked passage to Baltimore, Maryland in 1816. 
Later, his friend said that come to know him as sober, steady, and industrious. Yet, it was also clear to them he had a twisted attitude toward the entire female gender. He saw them as slaves to men, created to serve, never to speak unless spoken to, and to, quote, crouch in servile fear whilst in his presence. Even at the end, before his execution, a reporter asked what final message he would like to say to his surviving son, Henry. And Hellman said he'd advise him to marry a religious woman who knew how to hold her tongue and obey. Hellman made friends with a farmer in Virginia named George Abel and occasionally boarded with him when he was going through town. Abel had a full household, nine sons and daughters. And Hellman never spoke about women the way he did to his bachelor friends when he was with Abel. So Abel had no qualms about encouraging him to court his daughter Mary. Mary was 20, described in one news report as, quote, a blithe, buxom, and light-hearted country girl with rosy cheeks and sparkling eyes and totally unacquainted with the deceitfulness of the world. She was kind and affectionate and lived an innocent and happy childhood. In December of 1821, Mary and Andrew Hellman married, and they lived on her father's land for two years. But it was not a happy beginning. When Mary gave birth to a daughter, Louisa, ten months after their wedding, Hellman didn't bother to hide his bitter disappointment that it wasn't a boy. By the time Mary was pregnant with their second child, he was accusing her of infidelity. When their son Henry was born, he disowned him, calling Mary a harlot and insisting the child wasn't his. Mary remained with her husband, praying that he would return to the charming young man who had boarded with her father, but he never did. Hellman was abusive and neglectful, refusing to give his family anything but the bare minimum while saving every dollar he could his wife and children dressed in rags. In 1827, when Mary gave birth to their third child, a son named John, Hellman told her if she had another, he would kill her. Mary's father sold a portion of his own farm and bought a section of land in the new growing state of Ohio for each of his sons, as well as for Mary. His sons, John and George, moved to Stark County. The land Abel gave Mary was next door in Carroll County. Hellman was angry about the gift and at first refused to go live there. But eventually he did and they remained in Carroll County for five years, Mary miserable and unable to make friends, and the Hellman children in perpetual fear of their father, especially Henry, who was still being treated like a bastard. In 1836, Hellman sold the Carroll County farm for quite a bit of money and relocated his family across the state to Logan County, near Huntsville, Mary was thrilled. 
Her brothers had already moved there, and they lived nearby. She was so happy to have friendly and loving faces in her life again. By now, Louisa was 14, Henry 13, and John 9. But Andrew was as mean as ever. About a year after arriving in Logan, Mary poured herself a bowl of milk, stepped away to do a chore, and when she returned, she put the bowl to her lips, but stopped when she noticed a white powder floating on the surface. She immediately suspected her husband of trying to poison her. She threw the milk out. Hellman was the only other person in the house at the time. Several months later, in April of 1839, all three of the Hellman children fell ill suddenly and viciously. The cause? A mystery. Well, a mystery to all but Mary. She immediately suspected her husband had poisoned them. The children suffered in agony for two days before 17-year-old Louisa and 12-year-old John died from whatever it was. The two children were buried in a single grave at Herod Cemetery, their father unwilling to pay for two lots, though each were given a stone. Mary was inconsolable, but she had to stay strong for her one surviving child, Henry. She tended to Henry, who suffered for several more days, but he recovered. Mary, fearful what Hellman might do if she accused him openly, shared her suspicions quietly with family members, even writing her accusation in a letter to a sister who remained back in Virginia. Her family couldn't imagine a man would attempt to kill his own children, and they chalked her accusation up to grief. No charge was made, and the bodies were never examined. Five months later, Mary was dead at the age of 38. Mary and Andrew were home alone at the time. Henry had been sent to help her brother George, who was sick and needed a hand around the farm. Mary was happy to send Henry away. She was always looking for opportunities to keep Henry from the house and away from the father who hated him so much. On September the 28th, 1839, a Saturday morning, George Abel's wife, Rachel, stopped by to visit Mary. When she entered the house, she found Andrew Hellman lying in the bed in the front room, his head, face, and clothing covered in blood. Rachel asked what had happened, and he acted as if he were in pain and disoriented. He told her two days earlier, a couple of men had entered the house and struck him with a club. He said he'd been lying in bed, unable to move since it had happened. Where in the name of God is your wife? Rachel demanded. I do not know. Go and see, he told her. Rachel pushed open the door to a room in the back of the house and found Mary on the floor, her corpse mangled and her blood spattered on the ceiling, walls, and furniture. 
Rachel ran from the house and went to the home of Mary's older brother, John Abel, who lived closer than her own home. As Rachel and John rushed to return, John was already convinced Hellman had killed his sister. Authorities also arrived at the scene and found the house ransacked, drawers upended, and Hellman insisting his money had been stolen. They found a bloody axe and a bloody knife, and, after studying the scene, concluded Mary had been asleep when she was struck for the first time with the handle of the axe, that she rose after that first blow and tried to fight back, and that counted for the blood on the soles of her feet and the gashed wounds all over her arms and hands. More cuts were found on her torso, her legs, and her head was nearly decapitated, held on by a single thread of tendon. An examination of Hellman was conducted also, but they found nothing on him, not a scratch or a cut or a bruise. All the blood on him appeared to be Mary's. It looked as if Hellman had scooped it up and spread it all over himself. Hellman was arrested, a grand jury was convened, and he was charged with first-degree murder. Hellman spent more than a year in jail, during which he confessed he had hid his own money. Police recovered it from where he said he'd hidden it, behind bricks in the chimney. But he continued to insist his wife had been murdered by thieves as his trial date approached. In November of 1840, Andrew Hellman escaped. He managed to undo the iron hobble on his feet and simply walked out of a room where they let him spend his daytime hours. The manhunt was on. He was tracked to the house of a Conrad Harpole near East Liberty in Logan County, where he acquired a horse. Then they learned he showed up near his old homestead in Carrollton, where he was seen by someone who knew him. Then the trail went cold. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. In May of 1842, a man named Adam Horn arrived in Baltimore. Nobody recognized him as the Andrew Hellman who had lived there some 25 years earlier. Adam Horn boarded at the house of William Poist, found work as a tailor, and by that August, he had himself a wife. 
Horn was 53 years old. His bride was 16. Horn bought a piece of land, tended a small farm, and operated a store. There's no way to know what Melinda saw in the man she had agreed to marry, because Horn may have changed his name, but clearly not his character. He was ferocious and usually directed his temper at his young wife. When Melinda became pregnant, Horn accused her of being unfaithful. He even turned her out of the house for a time, and she went to live with her brother for several weeks. But everyone encouraged her to return to her husband and be a good wife, and she did. Their marriage lasted just seven months. An example of how bad it had become for her was evident ten days before her murder. Melinda confided in her minister, the Reverend Willard, that her husband treated her so badly she could not live with him, that sometimes he would abuse her, quote, half a night at a time. The minister told her to pray for her husband, but that on the authority of God's word, he could not advise her to leave him. The end for Melinda came the night of a snowstorm on March the 16th, 1843. The storm had dumped a lot of snow, and it took a few days for Melinda's family to come by to visit. But when they did, Melinda wasn't home. Horn told them she had left the house the night of the storm. He said they had gone to bed that night. She woke up a short time later, around 11 p.m., and he last saw her standing on the porch in her nightdress. This story did not sit right with Melinda's sister, Catherine. She returned to her brother-in-law's house to confront him, and he gave a different story this time. He said Melinda had taken some clothes and left, along with $50. Catherine still didn't buy it. She started telling people she thought Horn had murdered her sister. William Poist the man Horn had initially boarded with when he arrived in Baltimore, told Horn people were saying he'd done away with his wife. My God, Horn responded, how can the people say or think so? Catherine finally convinced a small search party to return to Horn's home and help her look for evidence of her sister. But this time when they arrived, Horn was gone, and from the looks of his house and store, He wasn't returning. As authorities began the search for Horn, others searched for any sign of Melinda in the neighborhood. And they found her. Well, part of her. A quarter mile from her home, some searchers noticed some disturbed soil and turned it up. They found an old coffee bag about two feet down, and inside, Melinda's torso. Back at the Horn house, they turned up another coffee bag sewn up with Melinda's legs and arms inside. Her head was missing. A physician determined she was five months pregnant. Investigators also found some of Andrew's clothes and a pair of his shoes, and they were all covered in the very same kind of clay in which Melinda's torso had been buried. 
Strangely, Melinda's body parts were well-preserved, and examiners determined she had been stored in liquor and probably dismembered and disposed of just the day before. They guessed that Horn knew he was about to be discovered and had tried to get rid of his wife's body. Horn wasn't on the run for long. Within days, they located him in Philadelphia and arrested him. By then, it's not clear how they had already learned about the hatchet murder in Ohio's Logan County, but they did. And they knew that their Adam Horn was the fugitive Andrew Hellman. As Horn sat in his jail cell, awaiting his trial in the murder of Melinda, the rest of his wife was finally discovered. It was May, a couple of months after she had been killed. A tanner named Mr. Olgeyer, who lived a mile from the Horns, lit a fire in his tanning oven and caught a glimpse of something beneath the woodpile. It was Melinda's skull. There's one more casualty in this story, yet another gruesome death in this trail of blood and gore. It happened just days before Horn's trial began in November of 1843. John Storange was a friend of Horn's, maybe his best friend, if a man like Horn could have a best friend. Storange was a shoemaker, and they had met when Horn had commissioned a pair of shoes. After Horn was arrested, Storange was brought in before the grand jury, as were all of Horn's acquaintances, to give any testimony they could. And Storange shared some dates and times that he had seen Horn while professing to know little about his wife. But his conscience weighed heavily on him, and one night he woke and cried to his wife, admitting that he knew all about the murder. He said Horn had visited him the day after he'd killed Melinda and said, I'm in a good deal of trouble and I want to tell somebody about it. Then he held out a German Bible and asked Storch to swear he would never reveal what he was about to tell him. Storch promised. Horn said he and Melinda had gone to bed that night, but after a short time, Melinda got up and went downstairs. He followed her and found her on the front porch talking to a young man named Franklin Reinhardt. After Reinhardt left, Horn picked up a fire shovel and beat Melinda to death with it. When Storch asked him what he did with the body, Horn said, Oh, don't trouble yourself about that. I've put that away all right. Encouraged by his wife to come clean, Storch repeated the story to a judge, who then immediately placed Storch in custody so that he couldn't go anywhere until he gave his testimony at the trial. But Storch promised he would make his statement under oath, and so the judge released him. Storch returned home on a Saturday night. That Sunday morning, he woke just before daylight and told his wife he was running out, that he'd be back in a few minutes. But he didn't return. Several hours later, a couple of boys crossing a field not far from the Storange house found his body in a field with hogs feeding on it. 
They chased the hogs away, but the animals had already eaten him from his knees to his loins and dragged his entrails out onto the ground. Examiners found a gash on both sides of Storinch's neck. They ruled he had committed suicide. They couldn't find the weapon he had used, but the hogs had dragged the body some distance from wherever Storinch had cut his throat. Three days later, on November the 22nd, Horn's trial began. The Baltimore Sun devoted entire pages to the testimony, and Horn was found guilty and sentenced to death. His son, Henry, visited him in the hours before he was hanged on January the 12th, 1844. A witness who was in the room with him said it was a cordial meeting. Horn slash Hellman offered the confession he wouldn't give during his trial and admitted to killing both of his wives. But he insisted he had not poisoned his children. The witness said it didn't appear Henry believed that at all. After Hellman was hung, his body was released to Henry. Now, let's get back to the haunted cemetery, because according to the legend, the ghost of Andrew Hellman walks those hallowed grounds where his first wife and two of his children are buried. Mary, Louisa, and John all have markers there. Pictures I've seen show people occasionally mark them with plastic flowers. Henry Hellman, the kid who had survived, he's also buried there too. He went on to marry and have a family, and there's a small cluster of tombstones that belong to them in the cemetery. But is Andrew Hellman buried here? Ghost hunters say yes, that a malevolent spirit has chased people from the grounds and terrorized motorists on the road, and that it's not uncommon to hear whispering voices and sounds of footsteps. Yet people who have searched for evidence of Hellman's remains say There is no record that he was buried there. He could be in an unmarked grave, but they can't help but wonder if Henry would really have wanted to transport his father back to Ohio and bury him next to his helpless victims. I mean, this man had killed Henry's entire family. Something else that has confused the matter for many folks is the fact that there is a large marker in the cemetery for an Andrew Hellman. But it's not the hatchet man. The dates on the tombstone clearly indicate someone 20 years younger than our killer. The legend of the hatchet man says this tombstone glows in the dark as a sign of its evil occupant. But If the moon on occasion catches the pure white stone and glistens, it could very well be that the ghost of the innocent Andrew is sending a message of light to his angry accusers. That's about as gruesome of a tale we have ever told, with the exception of the Cleveland Torso Killer. And just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, you've got the witness being eaten by hogs. I mean, is that for real? Yeah, sure is. 
You know, I've heard about killers using hogs to get rid of their victims before. Oh, and there was that case just a few years ago. There was a farmer in Oregon who was eaten by his pigs. And because they had devoured most of him, they couldn't be sure what happened. Like they were really hoping that he died first. Like maybe he had a heart attack and fell over in the pen. But there just wasn't enough of him to rule one way or the other. Good Lord. Makes me want to rethink eating pork. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. Paula has put a lot of work into that page. You'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for, any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers. We'll see you here Wednesday, and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.